gentlemen, welcome to the Tuesday night call Grounded in Commerce, better known as the GIC call. It is January, February 10th, or February 10th, it's not January, it's February 10th, 2015. Grounded in Commerce is a group of objectives bring sense to a seemingly senseless world of commerce. These ideas and concepts are a wide-range solution in commerce. The purpose of the GIC is many people tend to get lost into the commercial administrative process and their relationship being applicable to the private product public and private status for their merits and standings. We offer you for your consideration to our listeners a various exposure to materials and processes to gain an educational foundation to their administrative pursuits. These ideas and concepts here tonight are not to be misconstrued as being legal or financial advice. If you need legal or financial advice, we strongly ask you to seek a licensed attorney or financial planner or an accountant. These concepts and ideas are for entertainment purposes only. And I'd like to turn the mic over to Nancy. Are you there, Nancy? I am here. Good evening, everyone. Hope everyone is having a good day. Um, I'd like to, um, I guess, start out by talking about uh, something that we talk about a lot on here, about equity. And, um, and, and I would admit or submit that we um, all from time to time need some lessons in equity. Um, and in under lessons of equity, we have some maxims that are um, truths in, in law and in equity. Um, and they simply are that, that they are that. They are, they are equivalent as my perception is from the um, periodic table it are two elements. Um, maxims are to law. Um, so it's um, relevant to all of us in life, and yet something that we're not taught or or relatively have any opportunity to um, be introduced to. Um, so I'll just read a little bit here about um, what what some others and and because I'm I don't have all the answers that's for sure I'm just giving some information for you to ponder on for you to dwell on for you to um, soak into your bones about um, in your processes what you're up to what you what you want to do what you you don't want to do how is that affecting you. All of those things can come into play. So uh, a maxim is a broad statement of principle, the truth and reasonableness of which are self-evident. A rule of equity, the system of justice that complements the common law. Maxims were originally quoted in Latin, and many of the Latin phrases continue to be familiar to lawyers into the early 2000s. And I think that's interesting because most of us think that um, because of the change of the law system, you know, as it's moved along, that most of the maxims, they wouldn't have been quoted in Latin, and yet still in the early 2000s, they were still being quoted in that. The maxims are not written down in any organized code, I know, um, or enacted by legislatures. 
but they have been handed down through generations of judges. As a result, the wording of a maxim may vary from case to case. And as an example, it is a general rule that equity does not aid a party at fault. That maximum has been variously expressed. Um, I know there's one person on this call that has taken or had taken the time to, I would call it classify maxims, and maybe he wants to bring some of those to the table at this point, but these are, I would call highlights or, 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 or lessons for us to learn from. Um, if presented the opportunity, then one has an opportunity to actually learn. And, and this is all a growth experience. This is not anybody knows everything, nobody knows anything. This is all an opportunity for us to learn from one another. Um, so no equity or no one is entitled to the aid of a court of equity when the aid has become necessarily through his or her own fault. Equity does not relieve a person of the consequences of his or her own carelessness. A court of equity does not assist a person in extricating himself or herself from the circumstances that he or she has created. Equity will not grant relief from a self-created hardship. And I'd like to pause on that one for a moment because lots of people, you know, believe that there is someone else out there that's created this damage upon them. When in fact, many times um, through, you know, listening to a lot of people, um, the hardships created by themselves from inaction and inability to move forward. So I think that's a very interesting uh, maxim, yet we all really need to seriously look at what is the maxim that's in play and how is that, how are we interacting with that maxim? So equity will not grant relief from a self-created hardship. Um, Principles of equity and justice are universal in the common law courts of the world. They are flexible principles aimed at achieving justice for both sides in each case. No maxim is ever absolute, but all of the principles must be weighed and fitted to the facts of an individual controversy. A rule does not apply when it would produce an unfair result. A party cannot insist that a strict technicality be enforced in his or her favor when it would create an injustice because equity will instead balance the interest of the different parties and the convenience of the public. Two maxims form the primary foundations for equity. Equity will not suffer an injustice, and equity acts as personum. The first of these explains the whole purpose of equity. The second highlights the personal nature of equity. Equity looks at the circumstances of the individuals in each case and fashions a remedy that is directed at the person of the defendant 
who must act accordingly to provide the plaintiff with specified relief. Unless a statute expands the power of an equity court, it can make decrees that concern properly only indirectly, phasing them as decrees against persons. It is said that these are the oldest two maxims of all. All others are consistent with them. He who seeks equity must do equity. Really what that says to me is, if I am in honor with myself and my country and my God, whoever that may be, that if I'm in that state and format, then I must seek to do equity as well. So if I am in that frame of doing good, then I will be good. This maxim is not a moral persuasion, but an enforceable rule of law. It does not require every plaintiff to have an unblemished background in order to prevail. But the court will refuse to assist anyone whose causes of action is founded on his or her own misconduct toward the other party. If, for example, a wealthy woman tricks her intended spouse into signing a prenuptial agreement, giving him a token $500 should they divorce after a marriage, she engages in a consistent pattern of conduct leading to a divorce. A court could refuse to enforce the agreement. This maxim reflects one aspect of the principle known as the clean hands doctrine. He who comes into equity must come with clean hands. This maxim bars relief for anyone guilty of improper conduct in the matter at hand. It operates to prevent any affirmative recovery for the person with unclean hands, no matter how unfairly the person's adversary was treated by him or her. The maxim is is the basis of the clean hands doctrine. Its purpose is to protect the integrity of the court. It does not disprove only of illegal acts, but will deny relief for bad conduct. That, as a matter of public policy, ought to be discouraged. A court will ask whether the bad conduct was intentional. This will rule, or this rule will not meant to be punished careless or a mistake. It is possible that the wrongful conduct is not an act, but a failure to act. Did I not just speak a little bit earlier into when people want something to happen and they think life is unjust, but yet they have taken no action towards getting that? Um, okay, so for example, someone who hires an agent to represent him or her and then sits silently while the agent misleads another party in negotiations in as much responsible for the false statements as if he himself or she herself had made them. So that speaks clearly to me that it is our job and duty to direct our attorneys at whatever we believe and interrupting if they are misquoting or misstating anything in regards to your case. The bad conduct that is condemned by the clean hands doctrine must be a part of the transaction that is the subject of the lawsuit. It is not necessary that an act that excuse me. 
it is not necessary that it actually have hurt the other party. For example, the equity will not relieve a plaintiff who is also trying to evade taxes or defraud creditors with a business deal, even if that person was cheated by the other party in the transaction. Equity will always decline the relief in cases in which both parties have schemed to circumvent the law. In one very old case, a robber filed a bill in equity to force his partner to account for a sum of money. When the real nature of the claim was discovered, the bill was dismissed with costs and the lawyers were held in contempt of court for bringing such an action. This famous case has come to be called the Highwayman, Everett versus Williams. And judges have been saying ever since that they will not sit to take an account between two robbers. That would be fitting on that part. Equity aids the vigilant, those who do not slumber on their rights. This principle recognizes that an adversary can lose evidence, witnesses, and a fair chance to defend himself or herself after the passage of time from the date the wrong was committed. The defendant can show disadvantages because of a long time he or she relied on the fact that the lawsuit would have been started. Then the case should be dismissed with the interest of justice. The law encourages a speedy resolution for every dispute. It does not favor a cause of someone who suddenly wakes up to enforce his or her rights long after the discovering that they existed. A long, reasonable, or unreasonable delay is like a like sorry. A long, unreasonable delay like this is called latches. It is a defense in forms of various equitable relief. May I stop you right there? With sure. there, I, I've been trying to say this uh, a couple times, and I didn't really, really want to interrupt you, but there are times when your phone flares a little bit, and the word you said is called, it sounds like flatches, it's, and so no. you're getting some very good information tonight, but with the slight flaring of your particular phone, which has happened often enough, uh, throughout other calls, it's really not easy to follow you. So I'm leaning over and listening as hard as I can, but I could not understand that word. Think of a fence latch, a door latch. latch. And believe me, I appreciate every bit of your effort to share all this that you have dug through whole earth for, Nancy. So thank you. That's fine. I'll, I'll pay more attention to how <laughs> the words go into the phone, and I don't know what's wrong with it tonight. Um, it does it off and on at different times, so uh, throughout the different calls. So it's just, you know, communications are just one of those deals. Okay. Well, we we have been having extreme wind and rain and flooding and a few other things. So I don't know that we had any actual windstorms today, but yesterday we had 90 mile an hour gusts. <laughs> so anyway, it's been it's been interesting. Um, next one is equity follows the law. Equity does not replace or violate the law, but it backs it up and supplements it. Equity follows appropriate rules of law, such as the rules of evidence and pretrial discovery. Equity acts specifically. This maxim means that a party who sues in equity 
can recover the precise thing that he or she seeks rather than a monetary damage as a substitute for it. This maxim is the remedy for specific performance. Equity delights to do justice and not by halves. It is the purpose of equity to find a complete answer to the issue that are raised in a lawsuit. It will bring in all the necessary parties, balance their rights, give a decree that should protect all of them against further litigation on the subject. Whenever necessary, the court will retain jurisdiction in order to supervise of re- enforcement of relief. For example, a lawsuit may remain alive as long as an injunction is enforced. Either party may come back into the court and apply for reconsideration of the order if circumstances change. Courts also retain jurisdiction when child support payments are ordered The amount can be changed if the child's needs require an increase or if the supporting parent becomes ill, unemployed, or retired. Equity will not suffer a wrong to be without a remedy. This is the traditional purpose of equity to find a solution in lawsuits where the money will not pay for the injury. Equity has the authority to find another remedy. This maximum is restatement of the broad legal principle, where there is a right, there is a remedy. The maximum is applied in equity in an orderly way. It does not mean that go anything goes. It calls forth to recognize remedies for well-established wrongs wrongs that are invasions of proper property rights or personal or civil rights and that the law considers actionable. A court will not listen to complaints about every petty annoyance or immoral act. Equity regards substance rather than form. It will not permit justice to be withheld just because of the technicality. Formalities that frustrate justice will be disregarded and a better approach found for each case. Equity enforces the spirit rather than the letter of the law alone. Equity is equality. This maxim means that the equality will not play favorite. For example, a receiver who has been appointed to collect the assets of a business in financial trouble, must use the income to pay every creditor an equal share of what is owed to him or her. If a pension fund loses a large amount of money through poor investments, then everyone who is entitled to benefits must suffer a fair share of the loss. A judge will depart from this principle only under compelling circumstances, but the rule applies only to the parties who are in equal footing. If, for example, a woman in an auto accident died, leaving three young children, then the money that is recovered might be distributed in proportion to each child's age. The younger child will have lost his or her mother for more years 
than an older brother or sister. Also, a receiver would have to prefer a secured creditor over those creditors who had no enforceable interest in a particular asset of the company. Unless there is proof that one person in a group is a special is in a special position, the law will assume that each should share equally in proportion to his or her own contributions or loss. Between, equi- between equal equities, the law will prevail. When two parties want to share the same thing, the court cannot in good conscience say that one has a better right to the item than the other. The court will leave it where it is. For example, a company that had been collecting sales tax and turning it over to the state government found it that it overtaxed and overpaid by 2%. It applied for a refund, but the state refused. The court upheld that the state on the grounds that the money really belonged to the customers of the company, since the company had no better right to the money than the state. The court left the money with the state. Between equal parties, the first is in order of the time shall prevail. When two parties shall have a right to possess something, then one who acquired the interest first should prevail in equity. For example, a man advertises a small boat for sale in the classified section of the newspaper. The first person to see the ad offers him $20 less than the asking price, but the man accepts it. That person says he or she will pick up the boat and pay for it on Saturday. Meanwhile, another person comes by and offers the man more money, and the man takes it. Who owns the boat? Contract law and equity agree that the first buyer gets the boat. The second buyer gets his or her money back. Equity abhors a forfeiture. A forfeiture is a total loss of a right of a thing because of a failure to do something as required. A total loss is usually a rather stiff penalty unless the penalty is reasonable in relation to the seriousness of the fault, it is too harsh. In fairness and good consciousness, a court of equity will refuse to permit an unreasonable forfeiture. This maxim has particularly strong application to the ownership of land and in the interest for which the law shows great respect. Title to land should never be lost for a trivial reason. For example, a delay of only a few days in closing a deal to purchasing a house. Generally, equity will not interfere with a forfeiture that is required by statute, such as a loss of an airplane illegally used to smuggle drugs into the country, unless the statute violates a due process requirement of the Constitution. The penalty should be enforced. Equity abhors a forfeiture, does not overcome the maxim that equity follows the law. Neither the equity or neither will equity disregarded a contract provision that is fairly bargained. Generally it is assumed that a party who does not does most of what is required in a business contract and does it in a reasonable way should not be penalized for the violation of a minor technicality. A contractor who completes work on a bridge one day late, for example, should not be treated as though he or she had breached the entire contract. If the parties, however, include in the agreement 
express provision at such time of the, is of the essence. This means that both parties understand that performance is on time is essential. The party who fails to perform on time would forfeit all or his rights under the contract. So I hope that that gives you some, um, actually that's done by the Gale Group Incorporated. Um, I just wanted to, um, I found it valuable to start the call tonight in that way so that one can start to understand how equity, maxims, law all start to interplay with each other. So uh, pass it over to anyone that has any questions, comments, or concerns, or additions and corrections. Anybody there? There's a couple of maxims that I can add that I have in memory. That is, the creator is always greater than the created. And one cannot be a judge in their own case. You're very good. You know, the one thing about what's going on here, what Nancy's talking about is, you know, Kenny always talks about uh, equity doesn't care who pays, you know, who pays the bill. You know, I mean, they don't care who pays the bill. Anybody could pay it. But when you start looking at equity, there's a lot of different angles. If you create fraud upon the court, you're not going to get to reward. If you're going to, you know, um, you know, maybe two people have done some criminal activity together and one's suing another, you're not going to get your reward that way either. So there's a lot of other ways in equity that, um, you know, you could get your reward or you can't get your reward. But... No, so I think we should be a good student, and maybe we're asking for something that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be getting our reward for. So um, I just wanted to put that out there, so for consideration. I say that that happens a lot when people think that they're due something, and yet they're really not due it. It's, you know, they they believe that there's a wrong, but it's just because it goes against what they believe or what their internal, you know, clock is or whatever that is. But yet, when you get out in public, it may, it may be against their own rules in their own house, but if you go outside, it's not against the rules outside the house. The body politics. Anyone else have anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I may jump in just for a moment. I, um, perhaps you would like to add, uh, for the purpose of necessity being given to the law forms, um, maybe you would like to offer what the distinctions between inequity and in law is. The distinction between inequity and in law. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it is a foundational point. Um, I mean, it's wonderful to bring in the subject matter of inequity mm-hmm. and yet, and understanding the nature of what inequity is. We should also recognize its counterparty is in law. Perhaps you would mm-hmm. like to discuss those so that people are founded within that subject matter. Um, yeah, I just wasn't quite prepared to bring that to the table tonight, Um, and yet in law, 
Um, Well, could it be this way to maybe help out a little bit? Equity might be sort of like legal, you know, and when you go into court, it's all about contracts. That's what's happening in your court, equity. And if it's in law, it'd be about rights. So, and they do go hand in hand in some ways. So, you know, um, you know, maybe you have a right to defend yourself, and you know, maybe in and maybe you were not allowed to do that. So that would be a right for you. But if you can't if you can't defend yourself in equity, you're going to lose. So maybe that's kind of a distinction that might be useful for equity in the law. That's what I can believe. Uh, well, if if I may add, uh, I to for this purpose, maybe it it could be of value to recognize that law is simply a body of rules, and those rules are regulated, you know, as you know, by the government, and they're essentially they're all enforced by the courts. When we're looking at equity, equity is also a set of rules. However, those rules follow the natural law. Uh, given to fairness, you know, good faith, fair dealing. When we look at a court of law, as an example, a defendant, uh, which would have been a party who had somehow breached or created a tort of some sort or another, would be ordered to pay perhaps a monetary damage. And in its contrast, that in equity, that the person that would be the complainant or the plaintiff that what they want is to get something back in which had been taken from them instead of simply just getting money. And the court can then make the order to the defendant to have to do that. They have to follow through with it. So could we give an example for that, Kenny? Some, something that would be give back? Sure. As an example, what if somebody wrongfully foreclosed upon a property? Okay, so you could be um, you could be getting money, I would imagine, for damages, or you may be asking for the property back. There you go. Or both. Or both. There you go. The subject matter is is that equity. When you know, like if we looked at law maxims as an example, equity follows natural law. We should recognize that distinction. What natural law is, and when we look at artificial law or man-made law or commercial law will recognize that as being that of artificial law. That is just a bunch of rules and regulations which may change from place to place. Natural law doesn't change. Mm-hmm. You are, uh, is, is this making sense so far? So if we went to said like the federal rules of civil procedure are for like everywhere, but your rules in your state or rules in your county, they could change. You know, They're under their little codes or whatever. Maybe they don't have the same verbiage to it. But is that what we're trying to say that? Can we say it that way? Would that well, let me give another example. Uh, rules are arbitrary, and society may have a phase where they prohibit alcohol, and then they may change their thinking and make it legal. Again, we'll recognize as an example the UCC, although it is uh, considered a uniform structure of law, will note that it is far from being uniformed. Each state adopts in whole or in part mm-hmm. the UCC, which may or may not align with the federal proposals of the UCC. 
Now, those are all regulated by the government, right? They've all been adopted by the government, and they're enforced by the courts. When we look at law maxims, all they are is taken to the consideration of inequity as to see if there has been something that a party has been wronged, such as maybe illegal conversion, as an example. Uh, Frequently, like... uh, um, code enforcement would be an example uh, where they step in and they seize your property, you know, take something off of your land because they say, oh, it was the wrong color, you know, the grass was too long or something. Uh, they, they, they come in and they just take something. Well, if you move into the regulations by the government, they would be within their right to do that. However, in equity, you'll note that that, con- that that embodies a trespass and a damage on someone's property. So if they came onto the property and took your vehicle or, you know, uh, tore a shed down in your backyard or whatever the case may be, just um, rip up um, your garden or ripped out your vegetable plants or whatever you had in the backyard, which they're doing, by the way, those right there are in one element, it can be viewed as equity. The other side of that is to note that if they were to take something that cannot be replaced, such as if they cut down your cherry trees in your backyard or they ripped up your garden, well, they can't give that back. So then it would be under the regulations of the trespass so that you could receive perhaps a monetary damage for that unlawful conversion. On the other side of it is, is let's say they took a, a vehicle off your property now, in equity, then you can have them return that vehicle. Is that making sense? You're not, you're not requesting monetary damage. You're just ask, asking the court to make to, uh, restitution being to give back what is owed. Is that making sense? Yep. Okay. When, when we look, another way of looking at it is that in a court of law, Generally, a case is heard by a jury. And while a judge operating within equity, that only the judge will settle the case in that matter. Because it's falling upon the natural law. This is one of the things in which uh, a lot of the sovereign uh, movement or patriot groups out there seek to uh, force the court into is inequity which is their claim is, you know, to be made whole of something. But yet, where they're kind of tripping over themselves is that they're asking for monetary damages. As soon as they start moving into monetary damages, at that point in time, they slipped out of inequity and they moved into in law. Does that make sense? No, I thought money was equity to solve. That's why I thought it would be appropriate for an equity court. Equity is a uh, okay. Let's let's try to redefine this, Dave. Is equity money? Yes, it's actually it's a value. Is what we're speaking to. Equity is a value. It yeah. does not necessarily mean Federal Reserve notes. Okay, are we on yeah. the same page so far? Yeah. So the idea is is that if you viewed a court system that is operating 
inequity. Inequity would move towards things like injunctions to prevent an unrighteous or unjust action. Okay, is that me? I heard you guys speaking to divorces earlier. Frequently, you'll find out that within divorce cases, uh, one of the parties will seek to have an injunction, a preliminary injunction put into place to prevent the other uh, spouse from perhaps liquidating assets of the marriage. You'll note that that is speaking to inequity, in other words, a value to prevent an unlawful conversion of property. Is, is that is that making sense so yeah. far? Okay. Now, when you look at in law, the idea would be that the law would be ordering a writ in order to prevent the unlawful conversion. In other words, they're using the rules and the regulations of the system to prevent an injustice. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Was did I was I able to define that? See, there's more to it, but that, I'm just trying to find the, the simplest common denominator to express this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. See, well, the idea is, is like, you know, like if you were looking at writs, right, those are, those are more difficult to obtain, okay? And they are, they are nowhere near, they're, they're not flexible, or well, let me say that's not so bad. Not. They're less flexible. Okay, whereby when you look at an injunction, an injunction can be flexible. In other words, like uh, if you have two parties that step in, and one has, um, if they're seeking to move a preliminary injunction during the case of a divorce, if the uh, if the other spouse could just simply speak into the matter to show where the value uh, is not going to be considered an unlawful conversion, then there would not be a preliminary injunction installed to prevent the other party from liquidating some asset for some reason or another, whatever that is to be. Like for an example, many uh, parties that are going through divorce, as an example, uh, one party will intentionally seek to uh, place um, a preliminary injunction in intentionally to create a damage against the other spouse, such as perhaps there may be things within that, um, that relationship, that marriage, where one of the parties is using some operating expenses and whatnot um, that, that, um, that is used to carry a business. And this way here, the, the uh, petitioner is seeking to lock up the bank accounts prevent them from being able to sell maybe a pro, you know, the products or something. Maybe they were partners being able to sell a product of some sort or another. And what they're trying to do is prevent them from doing that so that they essentially uh, financially collapse that person. Is that, is, are you following mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So in other words, by the preliminary injunction being inequity is being used in a form to create a damage against the other person. If that person can show the expression that in order for them to uh, sustain their living, their income, it's being recorded anyways, uh, then in that event, then the preliminary injunction would not be necessary. Is that making sense? Yeah. Okay. 
But now, on the other hand, if the subject matter was that in the course of the divorce, let's say that the, the person had homes or something like that, and now one of the priorities is, is filing for divorce, and they're worried that the other person is going to sell off the property and then pocket the money or something like that and just take off. Well, then the judge may turn around and freeze the bank account and freeze the um, uh, any, any potential for that person to sell the properties. In other words, you can't sell those properties. So then they would order a writ to prevent them from doing that. So you notice that there it doesn't have the flexibility that would be in law. Thank you. Okay. And additionally, we should recognize that when we speak to inequity, those are subject matters that are left to the discretion of the judge. Kenny, you said something about um, a person going through a divorce, a husband and wife going through a divorce, and one party says uh, you may be um, going to sell the house or whatever. But actually, both if both names are on the deed, one party just really can't sell the house because the other party still has interest in the property. I mean, um, it, you know, because you're a corporation. So it would be very hard for, you know, without the other signature, a party would be very hard for someone else to sell the house and at I all. Agree. And within that frame, I would agree with you. However, in the same context, can a property be listed in one person's name within the marriage? Mm. Yes, it can be. Okay. And within that, and if you wanted to expand it, what if it was a rental property? And the monies that was being acquired from the rental would not the other spouse also be entitled to that part that portion of the rent? Oh yes, yes, that would be, that would be true because it becomes part of a marital asset, correct? That's yeah. correct. Okay, so now do you see where the judge may turn around and say, "Okay, stop! You cannot turn around and liquidate that property." Does that make sense? Okay, now on the other hand, and even though it may not be in both spouses' names, the idea is that the outcome of that rental property, the monies that are going, was being designated to the marital asset. So in that, in that way, it means that now after they go through the procedures, you know, we're talking about the divorce proceedings, then the judge would make the determination you know, that if the parties couldn't come to an agreement as far as an assignment to that property, then they may force a liquidation, you know, kind of like Solomon's rule there, you know, kind of split it. Yeah, that's true. It happens every day. Okay, and that right there would be, uh, when, when you go into that action, that would be considered in law. I mean, it, it's, it's underscribed by inequity, but that would be in law, you know, as far as the division of the, uh, well, you're dissolving the corporate uh, partnership there. Now, on the other hand, if you had, as stated, you have a piece of property where both parties' names are on it, and one of the parties decides that they're going to, we'll say, use their power of attorney, so to speak, and sign the other party's name in order to liquidate that property. Yeah, that's still that's still type of a fraud, and that's still type of that. You could be criminally fouled after that too. That is true. That's that's if the other party would move in that direction. But if they were ignorant to the cause, or if they were acting pro se and they didn't know any better, then the other person may be able to get away with that. Yeah, it's true too. 
So this is why the court steps in and they use their power of discretion to prevent that from happening. So in other words, if if the one party would cast the other party as as to their character, as to show that their character may uh, not be sterling or may be unclean or something like that, then the judge may move forward with a preliminary injunction to prevent that from happening. Well, still the party, the other party still would have to come back and still state some, some um, they would have to have some proofs there in order for that to happen. They just couldn't, unless the, the other person never objected, somebody, you know, one of the parties would come into court and not and never object to anything that's being said um, and just say some, some, just say stuff, you know, basically, then um, without being objected, it would be, I mean, where they have to bring some kind of evidence, I would imagine, in the court in order to be able to move their claims. Well, yeah, that's true. Again, it, we have to go back to the discretion of the judge. The judge has the discretion in equity. And that is one of the issues, and which I'm sure that that's where Nancy was ultimately going to uh, take this train, was to recognize, since we uh, generally we have been discussing mortgages and whatnot um, um, on, the, on the calls of late, that the object is, is that um, a judge, during the course of proceedings, they can move back and forth in between equity and in law at their own discretion. And this is like a lot of people end up, if they do not assert their rights and bring the law, being the rules and the regulation, during the time that the judge is seeking to move forward with certain uh, discretions in equity, then they'll end up losing their case. So they have to be prepared to deal with the rule and the regulations so that they can enforce, you know, by asserting their rights and the state law, rule and regulation, so that the judge has to follow the law, in law, following me, and they don't just use inequity, which is their discretion. Well, I could probably give you an example for something like that, and um, it would be that, you have a certain amount of times to answer some documents, maybe 20 days, 10 days, whatever it might be, right? And uh, But if you fault in answering, you know, in a timely manner, then you lost your rights into, into doing it, then to be able to defend whatever you're defending, your defense, right? But okay, are you not answering your own question at this time, or you're not saying that that is rules and regulations in which are governed by law? That's rules and regulations. And if they judge, let's let's just say that I know I know of a rule that says that um, it's a ten day rule. But if the if the tenth day lands on a Saturday, Sunday, or a legal holiday, you could file the very next day. All the open, you know, because courthouse is closed. How you file, right? But but in that same breath, if you did, if the person did not assert that right, being the rule yeah. regulation. Then would not the court use their discretion and turn around and just simply you filed late? Yep, absolutely. That was all the time. There you go. Yep, there you go. So, <clears throat> so what else are we going to talk about tonight, Kenny? Um, what, uh, else do you have what, what does Nancy have? You guys have something to talk about tonight? 
Well, I thought we would talk a little bit about maybe the uh, Saturday uh, call that we or the Saturday webinar that we had, and there was a few questions that were brought, and um, for some clarity. And uh, I think Lisa or um, Nancy, Nancy had a call uh, something about that, and it was about um, remember what it was Dave? It was something about um, the promissory note, and they put without recourse on the duly qualified holder had the bank loan. You were sitting across the table. They were the dual qualified holder. Then later down the road, the promissory note or, or the launch had a little term on it called without recourse. Now, we know that without recourse means that it changes the com dynamics and com complexity of the promissory note, and she's not really a promissory note anymore. But then yeah. again, you've got these servicers and all these other people that are saying they have a claim and they're coming forth, right? So the question came, and it was a pretty good question to did the duly qualified holder, did they, have, did they defeat themselves by not having a claim at all, or did they still have a claim, even though they were duly qualified holder, even though they had changed the launch that said without recourse? And uh, I, you know, I gave my answer, and I think of it, but let's hear from I, other I, people on that. So okay. Let me help you out here. My position was that um, that uh, th that the that the original borrower will say um you know still had still owed for the house even even with respect to the to to the to the lender but fr from when, whenever that without recourse appeared on that promissory note the borrower no longer had a relationship with with anybody past that without recourse qualif qualification does that make sense mm -hmm. Yeah. So that that was the essence of my question. Well, that was you were talking about it being after the um, after it got signed. So there would be a servicer or another bank or uh, lost you know people with lost notes and all that stuff. That would be that them. They were not the duly qualified holder. They may be a holder. They may have some interest in that part. But I think the question was brought back to where if the duly qualified holder had it right had the had the um, you know, they have the, the assignment or whatever, and they could do whatever they want to do with the instrument. And if they put a rec without recourse on it, isn't that under, like, claims of recoupment where they were saying that um, you did not understand the illegalities of it and they changed the dynamics and there was unbeknownst to you, something, uh, some kind of verbiage in there. You, I, mean, uh, I think that maybe I can clarify this real quickly, folks. Go ahead. One of the things in which perhaps is being overlooked is the definition that is given to the term negotiable instrument. If you just simply turn to, what is it, uh, definitions under uh, 104, 3-104. Yeah, characteristics of, of the promissory note, in other words, unconditional promise to pay by a okay, stop. certain did date. Not, did you not just detail this, the operative word? Well, you you would you would you would unconditional. Unconditional. When you make when an instrument is taken from unconditional to conditional, did it not change its characteristic? Yep. Okay. So how is the person going to turn around and claim that? They are in possession of a negotiable instrument. Who would be the person? Who would be the person? How, how 
How would the They're the one who brought it up. I don't know who the person is. The successive buyers or, um, yeah, whoever the original lender sold it to. And here's the irony. This is what Chuck saw in the courthouse record on a random case that he pulled. The original lender put without recourse on that promissory note. And then there were two subsequent, subsequent buyers of that note. So they effectively purchased a non-negotiable instrument. Okay, at that, and then by changing it from a negotiable instrument that was, con now remember, under the unconditional promise or order being that of a negotiable instrument, was it not attached to the deed or the mortgage? You got to ask Chuck. It's Chuck? The, it's, it's the thing, he saw this. Okay, what I'm getting at well, is... Well, well instrument they had a copy Sorry, Kenny, but there was in time, what did did not the nature of the contract change at that point? It did. And now the instrument in which the person is holding is it a security instrument as being secured, or has it changed to an unsecured instrument? I know the answer. <laughs> I'm letting everybody else go. Go ahead. Uh, well, who was, my thinking Paula was talking. Was that Paula? Lisa. Lisa. Okay, Lisa. Just w work with me here. I got no comment. At Go that ahead. Time is that a secured instrument or is it an unsecured instrument? The question is: is by 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 qualifying the the signature to to the to the future owners of the. Higher. By, by the purchaser of the instrument. Okay. If it was, if now, if we're looking at the endorsement whereby it now is stipulated, meaning it is now conditional by stating no recourse, is it a secured instrument or is it an unsecured instrument? Are we, are you? Are, He's asking you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, my question is, Is are we talking with reference to the original borrower? Or are we talking between the, the two parties that are purchasing this, this this different promissory note? Okay, let's take it, uh, let's go uh, from the original. If we take it from the original transaction, the AB exchange between the lender and the borrower, when those two parties entered into the agreement, was not the promissory note at that point in time a negotiable instrument? Yes. Okay, and that meaning that it was an unconditional promise or perhaps an order to pay um, a, a certain amount of money within a certain period of time, right? Yep. Okay. Now, that lender, which we know that in that transaction, he becomes the duly qualified holder, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay, as a duly qualified holder, can he do anything that he wants with that instrument? Good point. Yep. Okay, so if he wanted to forgive the obligation and just, you know, like shred the instrument, then he could, right? And then the borrower wouldn't be obligated to have to pay, correct? Right. Okay. If he decided that he wanted to sell shares of that instrument off, could he do that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So he could sell shares off it as well. If he was selling shares off of it, 
Uh, can any one of those people that purchased a share of that instrument, could they enforce the instrument? No. Uh, hold it. Who is Paula, your voice changed. <laughs> Lisa, your voice changed. Uh, well, n n n no, because they're not a there wasn't 100% transfer. That's correct. So, in other words, there was no rights that was transferred with that instrument because there was not 100% transfer of that instrument, right? Okay, now, if the person, the lender, were to sell that instrument off in its entirety to another party, now, is it still considered a negotiable instrument? Yep. Okay. Now, how do we know that it, it, it maintains its status as a negotiable instrument? Nothing was changed on it. Well, that's true, but but how do we identify with that? How do we know that it hasn't been changed? Uh, well, so here's here's another question that we had yesterday. Let's uh, answer this first. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Let's answer this first. Oh, so, how but do we you know? know? Well, I guess we have to go to a judge and have him. Oh, oh, no, no, you can do this yourself just by inspection of the instrument. Okay. What would, it, what would make the difference to identify specifically on that negotiable instrument that it still maintains its integrity? Ask the question again. What would what? How do we know that the characteristic of that negotiable instrument had not changed? Unqualified signature. Uh, by the way that it was endorsed? Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, by the way it was endorsed. Okay, so... When I was looking at the back of it, if we go over to endorsements, we'll recognize at that point in time that it has to be a special endorsement, correct? Uh, ask the question again. A special endorsement, meaning it's made out to a specific individual or person? Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that would mean what? Pay to the order of? Okay. So at that, point, at that point in time when it says pay to the order of, then we know that it's still maintaining the characteristic of a negotiable instrument, correct? Right, right, yep. Okay. So now what if I put a restriction on it, such as no recourse? Now what happened? Well, my, my position in this discussion was that the relationship between the lender and the borrower didn't change, but the relationship between the future the the purchaser and the and the seller of the note has changed. Uh, uh, hold on a second. If if that would be the true, if that would be true, then well, let's well here we have to step back just a moment. If the lender endorsed the instrument to another person, is he not transferring along with it all the rights that go with it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if he's transferring all those rights, and if it's and I and I'm was sure that we have already secured, you know, the definition that was given to negotiable instrument as being unconditional. That if he sold that instrument off to another person, is he out of the picture at that point? Yep, he is. Okay, so he's out of the picture. So now, with him being out of the picture. Now we take a look at the way that that instrument was endorsed, right, to determine what rights or status the new buyer has, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at that point in time, if it was paid to the order of, fill in the blank, 
then we know that it's still maintaining the integrity of negotiable instrument, correct? Yes. So that would mean that the buyer of that instrument is now withstanding, now this is being subjective also with the additional paper, meaning there would have to be the corresponding assignment on that deed or the mortgage, correct? Remember, they can't be bifurcated. It would have to be assigned over to the same person. Well, again, check's the one that brought this, you know, brought this issue in, and me not having seen what he's talking about, my questions started to arise in clarifying what he was saying. So I didn't see, I didn't see the note. I didn't see if there was an attachment. Well, I don't, I don't know if we even have to go into whatever Charles had seen. Okay. The, the idea is, is just to recognize the um, uh, what is necessary for the proper endorsements and assignments. Yep. In order for a party to be considered under 3-301, a person that's entitled to enforce. Right. So if the subject matter come down to the back of a note in which the note stated without recourse, at that moment in time, did it not change the underlying asset value of the contract? Okay. Does, does that make sense? Or is this raising any questions? Yeah, I don't quite understand that. It changed the underlying value of the contract. Yes, did it not? And At that point in time, if it was stated, you know, uh, no recourse on the back of that, did that not just separate the deed or mortgage from the note and make it oh. an unsecured instrument? It would have necessarily made it an unsecured instrument because it was no longer a negotiable instrument. The promissory note wasn't. Right, so it changed the nature of the contract, right? Okay. To go from secured to unsecured, okay. Unsecured okay. instrument at that moment. Okay, I'm seeing it, yeah. Okay, so now we can recognize that if they did that, then they are in. Now, if they're going to seek to move forward, they may try to move forward with a sense of, enforcement of the instrument, meaning the note, could they foreclose on you? Yes, the person was foreclosed and lost their property, according oh, to Chuck. Well, that can be true, but that's anything. not the question. I'm not saying what the result was. Oh. The subject matter is, is legally, and let me reframe that, if they were following the letter of the law and being if we had informed borrowers that know that was aware of chicanery and the use of color of law and what person that's entitled to enforce, would they be able to foreclose on the home? No. Not on the property, no. Okay. Why? Because it was unsecured. Hey, please. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, ditto. <laughs> I'll go for that. <laughs> Why? Why can they not foreclose? Right. Because, the, as he said, the nature of the instrument has changed. Okay, in what manner? By the, by the party, the new, the, new, the new buyer of the note and the, and the, the, um, the, the um, special signature, we'll say, the special endorsement, um, you know, uh, changed change the character of the, the relationship between the promissory note and the property, the security. 
That's correct. They changed the, the nature of the contract itself to where they, by their own action, they bifurcated the instrument. In other words, although the note at one time had been directly affixed to the deed or the trust, they separated that. So it's no longer collateralized. Yeah, even 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 if the, even if the allonge is still attached to the the deed, it's not. I mean, it's not it's not the same. It's not the same thing. That's correct. They they, they changed the entire nature because what, if we investigate the subject matter of notes a little further, we'll recognize that the that the note can take on different characteristics, such as it can become bearer paper, which is essentially what they're doing at that moment in time is they are converting it into bearer paper, bearer I ask, instruments. I apologize for being not up to date with about, without recourse. So what I'm hearing is that when that's a, that is added to the endorsement, you're, you're definitely changing the original contract to a whole new level where I don't know where it goes from here, but I'm hearing that without recourse is making that a, a, a bearer paper. That's, and yep. it's not, no longer specifically endorsed there's no real true party and it could be floating out in anybody's hands well no and not necessarily see in other words the nature of the of the contract in which was affixed to the collateral when they made it without recourse at that moment in time it became an unsecured instrument and that's because of why, Kenny. Because I'm sorry, I'm not so up to date it, on that. It's no point. longer it's no longer a negotiable instrument. Of course, very good. Thank you. Meaning, and I'm just guessing here. Meaning, recourse to the property. They don't have recourse to the property. Is that correct, Kenny? Well, remember the nature. What was carrying? What was carrying the 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 enforcement mechanism to the note? Security agreement. Security. And the security itself is, again, that deed, the title, right? Yep. Don't be in the property. That That's what that was all about. They are together to be negotiated. When they made it unsecured by saying no recourse, then it's no longer a negotiable instrument. So that would mean, as an example, if the person elected to uh, well, they could turn around and resell it, but they still would not be able to foreclose on the property because it's an unsecured debt at that time. So, as a so, I mean, I mean, so do you? I have a question about the understanding this bearer part, but if if you want to continue, you know, clarifying this step, go for it. Oh yeah. If I may add, if I may add, it sound, it basically sounds like the the note itself became wallpaper it's like a lot of people have bought bonds in the times past to help support oh the railroads or some public works and they never got paid on it because the governments uh, of this country and others simply just defaulted they said, no that yeah. would not be correct nancy it does not negate the value of the note it just makes it an unsecured okay so in other words it's a value but now it's not going to include a real piece of res with it. Yeah, There's it doesn't no have any security. Okay, no security you. is the only item or aspect that changes, as okay, I understand sure. it. 
Okay, let's 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 dance with the subject matter of bearer paper for a moment. Okay, the idea behind it, and and although there's a fine line on the way that it's used, is to note that a bearer, the the bearer instrument, is supposed to document the party or the owner of the document that has title to the property. Like a person could view shares or perhaps bonds. When we look at the idea of shares or bonds, we're talking about something that is divided up amongst multiple parties, right? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking. And if there is no, if there isn't anything that makes the distinction that a person is in 100% possession, you, you see that's where that special endorsement comes in. Is that making sense so far? Clear as mud, right? I don't know. Get to the punchline and let me see if I can connect it. <laughs> well, I thought that I just did by stating shares or bonds. Uh, did we not discuss just moments ago regarding uh, rights that are acquired by transfer? All right. So I guess if you don't have the record, if there is no record that is kept of the person who is owning the or owning the underlying property. And at that point in time, it becomes unsecured, correct? Yep. Okay. That's bearer paper. Yep. So so what's the value of bearer paper? Well, it's unsecured debt. You could view it as like uh, a credit card debt, I suppose, at that point. So you're going you're gonna, to you're, you're, you're try and come after this the the owner even though you don't have the right to so it's a third-party debt collector now well now go back to 301 and now go to test number three remember it says inside there that even if a person is in wrongful possession of the instrument they may the operative word may still be entitled to enforce the instrument okay so under that there is that not using perhaps like the color of law in other words, if a person doesn't know how to rebut that, then they could, they could, they they simply in, um, inject themselves into the contract as being a person that's entitled to enforce, meaning a person that's entitled to foreclose on the property. Right. So they're going to try to make claim for the enforcement mechanism. Okay. as the state that they are in possession of the underlying property or the security that goes with that note. Yep. But don't have any records that supports that. Once they made it no recourse, because now it changed the contract at that point. See, a bearer, a bearer paper is different from what you could view as uh, a nominally or normally registered type instrument, meaning it doesn't have any records to support it. Whoa, 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 whoa. The, the, the allonge, you know, the allonge went with it, so isn't that a record? Okay, let's, let's look at it like this. Remember, like, I, remember, let's go back to the AB exchange, so, and perhaps we can identify it this way. We go back to the original agreement, 
can the lender do anything he wants to do with that instrument, the note? Yes. If he turns around and sells shares of that note, can a shareholder enforce the instrument? No. Okay. What is a bearer instrument? That's the question. It's a share. It's a share. Okay. Can they enforce the instrument? Well, are we are we are we living in the land of color or not? <laughs> yeah, the whole game that we're talking about, I suppose, isn't it? We're talking about if a person is not aware of what's going on, they will seek to state that that bearer instrument is in fact a secured instrument. Yeah. Unless the borrower and or his attorney challenges the claim. In other words, they seek to get the judge to use inequity to rule in their favor. So it became a share by... by No recourse. Okay, so... So what, what got... I'm going to use the word bifurcated. What got bifurcated there was the the um, person entitled to enforce. That's the thing that got that got released. In in what in what way could you redefine that? Uh, well, when when the contract was changed by way of without recourse, the, the purchaser of the instrument lost the person entitled to enforce. Uh, they didn't. Well, not not in its entirely. They've oh, lost great. the security instrument yeah. to that note yeah. when it went without recourse. Okay. Remember, because remember, the, what is, the, for, okay, let's examine that. What is the recourse on the note? Which? For the purposes of enforcement, what is the recourse of the note? The security. That's correct, the security. So that means that if the borrower could not make the payments or defaulted on the payments, then if it was without recourse, meaning if it was still a security instrument, then they could foreclose on the home and take the property to offset the note, right? Right. Okay. But when they went without recourse, didn't they break the security that was attached to the note? Right. Is, is that making sense? Yeah. Well, the part that isn't making sense. Because now it, it, it has, see, when it said no recourse, that means, okay, well, that means it's just the value of that note. So now once it just becomes the value of the note, now they come knocking on the borrower's door and they say, here's a note, pay me. Now, what happens if the borrower can't pay? Then they say, well, we're going to take your home, right? That's the oh. claim. Yep. But can they, I mean, now, now this is where the whole color of law and all that other bit comes into play. They will use inequity in an effort to get the judge to view for what, I'm going to say, fairness, 
and say, look, Your Honor, we're in possession of this note. Then they seek to get the borrower to admit to a default so that they inject themselves back into the contract onto security. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. And that's where the judge will make the writ in law so that they can enforce the foreclosure. Yeah. Is that making sense? Uh-huh. Yep. Because, see, if they were in possession, meaning in possession, we'll note that they have both instruments. Right. They have the deed or the mortgage, and they have the note. Right. And when you look at the deed, the deed will have that person's name on it that's seeking to enforce. And then when you look at the note, it will say, pay to the order of that party. Now, when I if now say I was in possession of those instruments, then I walk up to the judge and I say, look. And he goes, yep, you can enforce your contract. You can foreclose on them. You know, being that we're saying that in a perfect world that there wasn't any, you know, MERS involved or anything like that. I'm just talking about a clean transaction. He goes, yeah, you're in possession of both. There is the, the security is there. The note is there. If the borrower can't pay the note, then you can take the property. Now, we're not talking about the recourse part here. It's just in the normal. Yeah. Now, the moment that they put would they say no recourse on that, then the recourse that was on the note was to take the property. Yeah, right. But when they said no recourse, that that made the note unsecured at that point. Right. So do we have that clear? I mean, did we clear the waters on that now? Well, I guess I don't like the word share. So I'm not, I don't really... I'll pick another one. How about bonds? So, so that thing became a bond and not a negotiable instrument. Oh, it's 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 no no. We've already identified it's no longer a negotiable instrument because it's now conditional. Right. See, once they put no recourse, it's no longer unconditional. They put a condition on it, so it's no longer a it's no longer a security instrument. So how does it have any value if it's a non-negotiable instrument? It can't be traded. Sure. I, can. What? It can? Sure. They can trade it all they want. In other words, the person has it in their possession. And if you take, uh, like, for example, if I take a, a check and I write a check out to Dave, and I write on the back of it, or no, here, let me put it in this way. If I take a check and I write, pay to the order of Dave, right? That, you know, that's right on the front and then authorized representative, I put my John Henry. Now, I give that instrument to Dave. Now, Dave turns around, takes that instrument, he flips it over and he signs it. Can he deposit it in his bank account at that time? Yep. Okay. So, what if. What if Dave turns around and he wants to give that note to you? Can he write, pay to the order of you on there and give that note to you? And can you deposit it in your bank account? I think so. Sure you can. 
because he just he just forced it over to you. Yep. Right? He endorsed it with proper endorsement. It was made out to him. He flipped it over. Remember, it's a special endorsement. So he signed his name. Then underneath it, he went, pay to the order of Lisa. And then Lisa's in possession. Now, when Lisa goes up to the bank, what are they going to make her do with it? Endorse it. But you're John Henry on it, right? Right. Okay, so then they would deposit it in your account, correct? Right. Okay, what if you didn't want to deposit it in your account? Let's say that you wanted to pass it along to Nancy. Could you put underneath it, pay to the order of Nancy and, so and the, to her? And so the need for the allonge. Yep, it could go to 100 million people. Yep. Okay, but what happens when I write no recourse? Well, it becomes a share. <laughs> okay, but now and now at that point, it now let's let's take it back and say I will go through that same thing again. I write it off to Dave. Dave flips it over. He writes his John Henry on the back of it, and then he writes on the back of it, pay to the order of Lisa, no recourse. What do you have to do with it? Well, I, I think I, I have to endorse it to overcome that. Well, you're going to have to endorse it, but what can you do with that instrument at that point? I don't know. You have to deposit it. Okay. Because it, it can't go any further. You locked it at that point. Dave locked it. Okay. So, so okay, so that, that that's the negotiable part. Okay. Okay, so he, so he locked the instrument up at that point in time. So that means that you, that means there's now been a condition that's been placed on that instrument. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So that means you, you have to, without any if, ands, or buts, you have to ledger that puppy at that point, don't you? Uh, yeah. So, so I think I think uh, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Chuck saw several other endorsements after that without recourse, right? Two. Well, remember, bearer paper itself is whoever is in possession of that instrument. That's all that that's saying. Yeah. Hey, well, the answer to Lisa's question remember, is no. Only that's only the note. Mm-hmm. But remember, since it's been conditioned, it stripped the security off of that note. Right. So they can't go back onto the security instrument being that of the collateral at that moment, so it become an unsecured instrument. Right. But it's still commercial paper, it still has value, and but but the recourse limits the pathway that, that it can go because it must be ledgered. That's correct. That's that's exactly right. But the, I I think you meant to say when they when they put no recourse on it. What did I say? I thought I heard you say recourse. But oh it's, yeah, no recourse. I mean, okay. that I may have misheard you. Yeah. Okay. But see, if okay. we understand these principles, you know, these these basic principles, then we'll come to recognize that. If there is a, when we're looking at the the negotiable instrument, well, which we'll say the note, when we're looking at the note, that see they can convert bearer or uh, a security instrument into a bearer instrument, and then they can convert the bearer instrument back into a negotiable instrument. How they do that? 
just by the way that they endorse it, and generally speaking, it's because there is an obligation that's affixed in between the two parties. As an example, let's say that the lender, the original lender, decided to borrow some money. Off of the off of the instrument or what? Yeah, yeah. Using using that instrument as a form of collateral. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So now they turn around and they relinquish the possession of that instrument over to another person. Right. But they didn't release the security to them. In other words, the lender is still in possession of the of the note, or I mean the uh, the deed. Okay. Are you following me? So that means that the person is a non-holder. That's the claim. He's a non-holder, but he's in possession of the instrument. Okay. Okay. Now, even though he's in possession of the instrument, he can't foreclose on the property. Does that make sense? Yes. But he's in possession of it, and the idea is is that he can seek to enforce the instrument, but who would he be actually want to enforce the instrument against? The party that lent him money. Yeah, the, the original lender, right? Yeah. So he would go to the original lender and say, look, I'm in possession of this, you pay me. Remember? that Because when you made the endorsement on it, that right there made you the obligated party. And now you're speaking of the borrower. The you in that sense is the borrower. Well, no, I'm referring to the the, the, the lender. in between the original lender and whoever he decided to okay. borrow okay. money from, and he gave that person that instrument. Got it. Yeah. He gave that person that instrument. That person will say party C. Party C is now in possession of that instrument, and now he's in possession of a bearer instrument. Yep. Okay, so that means there was an obligation in which was formed in between part uh, the original lender and party C. Exactly, right. Uh-huh. Okay, so what they end up doing is saying, okay, like for example, the original lender goes out of business. There was no assignment of the security over to the other party, party C. Right? Because it was a blank endorsement. In so many words, yes. So now they seek to enforce the instrument. So they they try to inject themselves into the originating contract of the borrower by saying, look, I'm in possession of the note, which is just a bearer instrument. Right. And they say, I'm entitled to enforce. Well, are they entitled to enforce that instrument? Well, yeah, they are. But can they foreclose on the property? And the answer is no. Okay. Because they didn't have the assignment, the security to go with that. Okay. Is this making sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is the purpose of putting without recourse on there, and what is the benefit to the original lender? Is it just to convert it into a bearer instrument? It can be. It could, in other words... The, uh, they may have made some sort of negotiation, uh, Dave, in order for them to, let's say they needed some liquidity for some reason or another. So they are in, a, in they're in possession of the original note. They're seeking some they're seeking some liquidity. You happen to have some extra cash on hand. They turn around and say, "Here, I'll give you this note, 
and you know and of course it'll come with an obligation you know perhaps some interest or something like that right you know for the exchange and the idea is is that um at some point in time they're going to pay back that money to that party that they borrowed from uh you know because they were seeking liquid and they're going to give some uh some interest to, along and when they do then they would convert that bearer paper back to pay to the order. Okay. So that means it would go back. Now, unless it was blank, if you're following what I'm saying, generally they keep it blank. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they just pass it on over to the other person. That right there is the um, um, the uh, the Ibenes case, right? They they sign it or endorse it, but they don't fill out to who, pay That's- to. That's exactly right. The the so in other words, the lender will endorse the back of it, but he doesn't say who it's being made out to, mm-hmm. so that the guy's in possession of it, so it becomes a bearer instrument. So they the idea is, is that he can put his John Henry in there and seek to enforce it. But remember, he can enforce the note, but he cannot foreclose. He cannot demand a payment. Um, based on the uh, the security instrument that was formed. In other words, they can't go after the collateral. Right. So when this bifurcation occurs, as I understand Carpenter v. Longan, that vitiates the promissory note when yeah. you bifurcate. Yes, and uh, along with uh, the security instrument, yes. All right, so let, let, so when you use the term bifurcate in that, in that concept, what you're saying is essentially by qualifying a signature in some way, right? Without recourse, stripped the security instrument. Okay, yep. Stripped away the security instrument, therefore it had to bifurcate it. I'm with you, okay. So yeah, that's where, that's, where the, that's exactly right. They bifurcated the instrument at that point in time. So that's where the term the term share begins to show up. Sure. I, I was just using that as something to hang a hat on for definition. Okay. We can, you know, I, I'm using it, but uh, because they will throw the terminology around in certain ways to uh, to where it's it's confusing. An example is is that when we take a look at three three zero one will note that the term in which they use goes like this. It goes, uh, person entitled to enforce. That's that's the title, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And then it says, holder of the instrument. So now you have to look at, you look up the definition, right? So since we're in Article 3, the first thing we do is we go to Article 3, definitions to identify what does instrument mean? Okay. Okay. So when we go into that, we'll notice that it says negotiable instrument. It says instrument means a negotiable instrument. And then I think they have like uh, three, four, five different, um, I think it's five, hmm. uh, different, um, you know, like A, B, C, D type things underneath it, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And now, and so now they, they now they have those broken up. Now, not every one of those meets the subject matter of a secured instrument. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Okay. Now, when we start looking at 
negotiable instrument where it says that it's an unconditional promise or order to pay, that's, that's one part. But now if you start digging through there, you'll also see that they'll start throwing in the other things, which is reference to unsecured. Okay. Are you, are you following what I'm saying? So far. Because it, it depends upon, even though they are both negotiable, like, see, I just used the definite, uh, using a check a little while ago as yeah. an example, yeah. which is a draft, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, a draft is also a negotiable instrument. Right. Mm -hmm. All right? And within there, as it stands, it's unconditional. Is that agreed? Yep. Okay, I mean, other than the fact of, you better have some money in the account. Okay, that's. I mean, that's the only other thing that we're speaking to here, right? Pay to the order of, yep. Yeah, pay to the order of. Now, when we start looking at the contract that goes to that negotiable instrument, so now they become affixed to each other. You following me? In other words... One or the other is not good enough. It's one and the other. You're, t you're talking about a mortgage now. Sure. They, they, you know, that, because those, that, that is part of the contract for that negotiable instrument. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, because that's the way that it was written. Yep. You know, is that that negotiable instrument was contingent upon the security in which it was formed on. And as long as they don't tamper with the nature of the contract, in other words, the characteristic of the contract, then it still maintains its characteristic as being a, the note, that is, as a negotiable instrument. So wherever the note goes, the deed or the mortgage goes with it. Right. Once they sit there and change the, change the term... Uh -huh of the negotiable instrument, then that means that they breached the contract to the security. And the reason they breached it is because they changed the character of the contract. That's exactly right. They changed the character of the contract and they converted as a form of novation, making it a negotiable instrument it, as to say that it was an unconditional promise, and they turned it into bearer paper at that point. So, when in other words, it's unsecured debt at that moment. So uh, let's see. If so, we, we, we part of this was uh, with a draft. So let's let's say I I issue a draft with a contract with it. Okay. Yeah. It's an unconditional order to pay this party, but there's, but there's terms and conditions that are that are that are that that, that there's a contract along with it. Okay. Okay. Um. So. So. It, it would it would have the exact same uh, elements even though it was an order to pay as, as a promissory note with a mortgage. In other words, a contract. Yes, and as long and, and so in other words, if, as long as we're staying on the same page, it would mean that wherever that note went, 
that deed or that contract better go with it. Yep. Okay. So that means that if you were to endorse that negotiable instrument over to Dave, you better make the assignment of that contract over to Dave too. So that would mean he would not be able to fall back on the collateral because that's what we're speaking to under contract, right? Well, I mean, okay. But well, here, let, here, let's just put it in another term. Let's use it something relatively simple. Let's just say um, instead of a house, let's say it was for a bicycle. Okay. Right? And the idea is, is that um, you're going to lend Dave money for him to buy a bicycle. The terms of it would be that that you would gain possession of the bicycle if he does not pay back the money. Okay. So wouldn't you have a contract that said, hey, you have to pay me a certain amount of money within a particular period of time for that bicycle. And if you do, if you breach this agreement, then I can take the bicycle from you. Right. And I can sell it. And... If I can't gather back the same amount of money in which I lent you for that bicycle, then I will charge you with a deficiency judgment to make up the difference. Okay, cool. I'm liking it. Go ahead. Okay, so now if Dave paid now if Dave pays you off, yep. then what do you do? You you shred the contract. You give it back to Dave, right? Right. So Dave gets the note back. And Dave also gets the, the contract back so he can destroy them, correct? Yep. Okay. Now, let's say that now you're a person that is entitled to enforce. Is that agreed? Uh, well, yeah, between okay. me and me. So you're the duly qualified holder in that transaction. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Now, let's say that you turn around and say, you know, you wanted all your money now. Yep. But the terms of the agreement that you had with Dave was Dave didn't have to pay you back for five years. Yep. So you turn to Nancy and says, hey, Nancy, I'm in possession of this instrument, which is good, that's payable within five years, plus the interest that's on there. Do you want to buy it? Yeah. And she goes, sure, I'll buy it from you. Okay. Oh, what do you have to do? So I, so I endorse I endorse the instrument and the contract. Oh. How do how do you endorse the instrument over the Nancy? I flip it over and pay to the order of. Pay to the order of Nancy, okay. And what about what about the what about that assignment? What so about the contract? So would I flip over the contract and 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 assign interest assign 100% interest over to her? Or you would have, or you would make up a, a contract that would go with it. Okay. Would be an assignment. Okay. I hereby release all interest and grant to Nancy the bicycle. You okay. with me? Yep, got it. Okay, and then in order to make that official, what would you have to do? Record it somewhere. That's correct, and. Under that recordation, would you have to have it notarized? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, in other words, you go to a notary you get, and you, you sign your thing on there that, you're, that you are releasing all of your interest 
in that bicycle and you are assigning it over to Nancy and you would get a notary stamp on that puppy, right? Okay. And now you give you have that uh, the the assignment papers which would be if, remember you would have the first one which would be the one that Dave wrote for you. Right. And then that one that you just made up for Nancy too, right? So okay. you'll see there's two assignment papers, right? Right. So you would have both of those and you would give those plus the endorsed note over to Nancy. Now, at that point, would Nancy become the duly qualified holder? Yep. And she would be entitled to enforce because she's in possession of the instruments. Right. Oh, does that work? Yeah. So Dave would have... Same with the house. Yeah. So Dave, would, Dave should be notified that... You know, in the five years when the when it's owed, he's going to be paying this other party. Not necessarily. If he was making monthly payments, ah. if he was making monthly payments, yeah. then subjectively, you could notify him. Ah. But generally speaking, the person who is the duly qualified holder would then notify Dave and say, Dave, I am now in possession of the instruments. You pay me. Okay. Now, if Dave wasn't on top of the game, then he may just start paying Nancy without even questioning it. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Now, if he was on top of the game, he would maybe he'd say, well, can you show me evidences that, that I have to pay you? And so when I recorded this, uh, would I have recorded all of this stuff, or is the recordation merely the getting the notary involved? Uh, well, in this case here, when, since we're talking about just a bicycle, you wouldn't have to record it in the county. It's not to say that you couldn't. Yeah. You know, and actually, if you wanted to secure your interest, you would. Okay. You know, you would secure it, you know, in there, and you fill in the box, pursuant, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that right there would secure or perfect your claim, that's what it's called, perfection. Right, 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 right. All right, now, now, if Dave wanted evidences that Nancy was the duly qualified holder, then what would Nancy show him to prove that? Well, the whole pile of papers. That's correct. She would turn around and, sh and send over copies of the instruments that reflect the note, that would reflect the original assignment to you and the assignment from you to her. Does that make sense? Right, but if, 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 if it had been recorded in the county, couldn't you send the party to the county to check it out? Mm -hmm. You could, but see, the subject matter is, is what if you, now let's kind of broaden that a little bit. Some states, would, uh, you know, they're considered permi uh, permissive states, and some states are mandatory. Okay. So if you were seeking to perfect your claim in a mandatory state, then that would mean that this transaction would have to be recorded in the county, right? Okay. And is that, is that, is that the preponderance of states are mandatory or not? Or No, most of them are permissive. Okay, go ahead. Okay, but that doesn't – now, remember, under – just because a state is permissive does not mean that they don't um, uh, 
that they can circumvent the laws of proper assignments. Okay. Okay. If now, if Nancy, if you were, if we were in a a permissive state, then then the transaction in which you went in with her, would you not release your interest, and then she would record in the county being in possession of the contract, so it would perfect her claim. Right. She wants to perfect her claim. Yep. Yeah. Even though it's even though it's permissive, and she didn't have to do it. Right. If she did do it, then it makes it pretty difficult for Dave to turn around and say, well, I don't know, you squat. Right. You know, otherwise he could challenge Nancy and say, well, you sent me over these copies, but unless I've seen the originals, because those could be fabricated. So I want to see the original instruments that supports your claim. If Nancy didn't want to show those to Dave, then Dave could turn around and tell Nancy that she can climb a tree. And and she goes, oh, me climb the tree? No way. What would Nancy's recourse be? Go to court, right? She would sue Dave. Okay, yeah. And then she would go in, and then would she not present the original instrument to her claim? She would. Okay, there you go. So now let's take it into another niche. You went through that same transaction. Nancy's in, in possession of the instruments, but she's a busy woman, and she really doesn't have time to keep track of all these records and stuff like this and the payments and all that other kind of crap. Okay. So what she does is she contacts, uh, who else do we have on the phone? Uh, Paula. And so she contacts Paula and says, uh, hey, Paula, can you be my agent on this subject matter and collect the payments from Dave Okay. for me? Yep. Now, if that would be the case, would she not have to have working orders for the agent, which says to the agent, I hereby uh, authorize you to accept the payments on this contract, whatever, and the details of the contract, from Dave? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the, now the, uh, the servicer, Paula, would then contact Dave and say, you make your payments to me. Right. And then Dave goes, who are you? Right. And, he go, and she goes, well, I'm the person who is servicing this loan. Right. And he goes, well, I don't know you from Eve. And... I want evidences before I start paying you anything. Right. And now what would she do? Show the, show the work order. She would show the evidences that, that's right, she would show the evidences that supports that claim, right? Yeah. Now, if Dave goes, well, those are just copies of instruments. Unless I've seen the originals, then I don't know for sure if whether or not you are the person that I should be making payments to. Mm-hmm. And so, and Paula turns around and says, I ain't showing you squat. So what's Dave say? Well, if you ain't going to show me squat, then I ain't paying you squat. So at that point, can Paula take Dave to court? No. Why? Not, 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 uh, uh, not able to enforce. Why? 
because all she got all she has been assigned all all her her marching papers say you can you can collect payment but you you don't have any other that's correct. It, so it was all contingent upon the contract from the duly qualified holder to the services as to restrict or limit or gave the authority, whatever that authority is, for that person to act within that authority, correct? Right. Okay. So Paula is going to go, or excuse me, um, Nancy is going to turn around. She's going to take off out of the country or something or another. Okay. So, so now she's going to say she writes a... Um, the contract out that says you collect payments from Dave and if Dave don't pay you in a particular period of time then I authorize you to begin procedures litigation against Dave for the enforcement of the instrument okay. can she do that now can she can she now begin litigation uh Paula yeah mhm yep she can at that point. Now, see, you notice how all these papers, now remember, even if it was in a permissive state, it doesn't have to be recorded at the county, but she has to be in possession of the papers. Now, when I say in possession of the papers, am I stating that she is in possession of the contracts as well? Uh, I would, well, I mean, <laughs> at some That's a good point, question. If Dave knows his stuff, he's gonna he's going to you know say he wants to see the original stuff. You know, That's correct. And in that case, there is she not to show Dave the original instruments. I if she's got them. Why wouldn't she have them? Well, because the contract is that that I mean the eight that I gave her was that she could move into into um, demanding payment or whatever. Okay. But now let's say that she, that Nancy gave the full enforcement because she was leaving country. Oh, the whole thing? Oh, yeah. Well, then she would have the papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So now we'll go back and we'll take a look at 3-301 again. At that point in time, now we should be able to make some real distinctions. If if uh, Nancy gave the working orders to Paula for her to be able to move forward with any forms of litigation, then that would mean that Paula would have to be in possession of the documents, correct? Yep. So she's a non-holder in possession of the instruments with the rights of the duly qualified holder, right? Right. That qualifies under number two, right. under 3-301, right? Yep. Okay. Now... What if Paula, uh, or I mean Nancy, turned around and told her, told Paula, uh, with working orders that says you can effectuate litigation against Dave if he doesn't make the payments, but she did not give Paula the original documents. Now what? Well, Paula, Paula can move forward on, you know, on the contract that she has by way of, you know, Nancy, but not any more than that. Okay, but she can still move forward with litigation against uh, Dave, right? Yep. Okay, now, if Dave wasn't on top of his game, now at that point in time, what do we recognize Paula as being when we, can, when we examine 3-301? Uh... So, she, she's three now, right? Yeah, 
three. Number three. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, because she she it doesn't have the originating documents, right? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, but she's showing the working orders and all that other stuff that goes with it. So now is she not seeking to use inequity with the court at that time to get the judge to rule in her favor to enforce against Dave? I sure wish she didn't use that word inequity, but um, I guess. Well, she doesn't have all the paperwork. Uh-huh. So if she doesn't have all the paperwork, then it has to go into using natural law. Okay. Makes sense? You know, in good faith and fairness. All right. Does that make sense? So in one one hand, she's showing documents in law and saying, look, I have the documents that supports that I have the working orders to uh, receive the payments and uh, begin litigation against Dave if he doesn't make the payments. Yep. Now, the judge is going to weigh that. Now, what can Dave do at that point? Dave, what could you do? I could request proof of signatures. I could request the original documents to be presented. So, so what are you what are you telling me at that point? Are you I'm challenging, challenging the signatures? So, therefore, you are denying by pleading. Yep. So you're denying the signatures. Yes. Okay. Until unless Paula can show the supporting documents that allows her or the originating documents, that allows her to move forward with accepting the payments and so that she can move also forward with litigation. In other words, so she can support her claim as being person entitled to enforce under Rule 2. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Now, if Dave cannot maintain that that law, if he starts to waver and starts to dick it around with that thing, the judge is going to use inequity, meaning he's going to use his 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 um, authority behind the bench to simply say, huh, you know, it seems to me that the, the papers are in order, and I'm going to go ahead and weigh in Paula's favor. So would this be like five months down the road, or would this? It could be. It could. It, it all depends on how long they want to drag it out. Dave, now, if Dave was on his game, he would be writing. He would be writing his discovery request, right? Yeah. Now, during the course that this was happening, don't you think that Paula, being on top of her game, wouldn't she be seeking? to do everything humanly possible for her to contact Nancy and says, Nancy, Dave has faulted. I, you either have to come back to town or you're, uh, you know, and bring the original instruments with you, or you're going to have to get those original instruments over to me so that I can show them to the court. Yeah, good. Okay. Yep. Now, what if she claims, well, I can't get a hold of Nancy? 
Who's the she, she claims? Paula. Paula can't get a hold of Nancy. Remember, Nan right. in this example, Nancy's traveling the world. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So Paula claims she can't get a hold of Nancy. Yep. So she can't get a hold of her. Now what? That's 309. And what's 309? It, it, that'll still go revert itself back to 3-301, even if you go 309. Oh, and by the way, Nancy is traveling the world for the for, for the record. All right. <laughs> what did it say? That kid. Oh, okay. Uh, so where are we? Oh, I thought that we pretty well. I think that we've taken this full circle. At least in my assessment, I thought that we've pretty well taken this full circle. Okay. Yep. Okay. Now let's go back to the other side and say because now we should have been able to make some form of distinction here, that if Paula wasn't in possession of all the documents, which includes the endorsements and the assignments, then she would have an uphill battle, uh, if that's if Dave is on top of his game, she would have an uphill battle to prove that she was a person that was entitled to enforce that instrument. Because because Nancy didn't, didn't properly... Uh, armor her well, one would be if she did not perfect her claim okay that's one because it was in a permissive state and she didn't record their instruments and she would be and, Paula. And just say that you did and she would be paula oh we, uh, let's take this take it back the original agreement was between dave and you okay and you perfected your claim so you recorded it even yeah. though it was in a permissive state yep now, you transferred all the documents over to Nancy. Okay. Okay, but Nancy didn't perfect her instruments because it's a, it's a permissive state, so she didn't have to record them. Okay. But she gave working orders for Paula to service, those, uh, service the instruments. Okay. Okay, so at that point in time, we'll recognize that it makes it a little more, the subject matter now becomes encumbered. Because Paula has to prove that she's the person that's entitled to enforce. Right. And the proof, going back to duly qualified holder, is to recognize the person that's entitled to enforce is the person that is the holder of the instruments. Right. So Nancy, Nancy's not perfecting left that possibility open. That's correct. So, in other words, she paved the way to screw herself. Right. Okay, in, in that regard, because she did not perfect her claim. Now, again, just because the states say, well, we're permissive, you can or you may or may not record, it's up to you. But if you want to perfect your claim, you best record it. Okay. But she didn't. Now, now Paula wasn't able to get a hold of Nancy. So what does she try to do? She tries to go to you. Now I'm trying to show you how the system works. Oh, okay. Now she tries to go to you. Okay. And tries to and, get, and says, hey, look, I need you to give an assignment to me so that I can enforce the instruments. Not going to happen. You see what I'm saying, though? Yeah. 
that's how the system, how they are, they're doing it right now in the system. Okay. Is Nancy's off traveling the world? You were the last person that had your actual papers perfected, and so they go to you and say, "Here, make the assignment over to me, so that I can enforce the instruments." <laughs> Nancy said it was okay. Believe me. Uh, yes, trust me. Yeah, and that's probably what they do, isn't it? It is, in so many words. Yeah. And who gives that authority? Merz turns around and says it all the time. Trust me. Nancy said it was okay. She's one of our members. Go ahead and sign off on it. But if the original lender, which was a tabletop funder in most cases, went out of business, that would be kind of challenging for them to do. That's so true. nonetheless, it would still be MERS who would be making the assignments, isn't it? That's correct. And that would be an assistant, I mean, a vice president? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, uh, vice president, secretary, you know, certifying officer. But mm -hmm. one of the ways to detail that, which should be relatively easy uh, during the course of the discussions, I'm hoping that this begins to jump off the pages for you guys, is that if you start looking at a complaint, you'll see that it'll say something like, Name of business for a name of another business as trustee for another business. Right. You see, do you hear all these different businesses that are being rolled into one person? Yep. And then they have, oh, well, I'm the person that's entitled to enforce. Well, you just mentioned that you are three different companies. <laughs> okay. Who are you? Well, I'm the trustee of what? Well, what's the paper say? Because I can't remember. <laughs> unless you unless you say something, I don't know. And I'm not going to admit unless you challenge me. Are you, are you seeing how this goes? Yeah. That's the color of the law. Unless you can go, hold it a second. It says you are so-and-so for someone else as trustee for something else as something else wow. and and you go through this and there and and like I started this off with just like three but you start looking at some of these and you come to find out that that the the first company was trustee as for someone else for someone else as trustee for someone else hmm. And unless you start going, that's why we were speaking to resulting papers. Yeah. And and unless you start digging backwards through this with discovery, one would never know who the originator of anything would ever be. Hmm. They have to sit there and start digging back. So you have the table funders that never lent a single penny in the first place. And when you take a look at the assignments that are down at the county, whose name is on that? Generally the table funder, right? Yeah. Now isn't that interesting? They're claiming that they were the that they are the creditor. And then yeah. we know that that's not true because they never lent a thing. So unless you can challenge them, now what has happened? Most of those table, table funders are already out of business. Yeah. 
So now they've supposedly made an assignment over to someone else. So you'll note that the name of the game at this point, it's not falling in law per se. It's falling in equity. Where the judge is sitting back going, hmm, it sounds reasonable. It sounds fair. And then what do they do? They turn to the borrower almost every time. Well, I can just say pretty well every time. And they say, are you current on your payments? That's the question they hit you up with. And is that the judge that asked that or the uh, opposing? The judge will say that while the, the opponent will bring that subject matter up. He's just trying to get a free bicycle, Your Honor. I see, and that's when what? So he prompts the judge to ask that question. Oh, absolutely. He 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 defaulted. He hasn't been making his payments at all, Your Honor. He's just trying to get a free bicycle by challenging the assignments. So the judge turns his his proverbial hat around, and he goes from in law to inequity. Mm. And unless you can bring the law forward. You know, as the defendant, if you don't come back and go, wait a second, the subject matter of payments to the party is irrelevant and immaterial until after they have established the fact that there's the person that's entitled to enforce pursuant the U.S. Uh, the UCC of this state. Right. That I do not recognize them as being the duly qualified holder. I have never received a payment, you know, the balance due from the duly qualified holder. I do not know at this point if this person is the duly qualified holder and the judge will lean on you again. Are you saying that you defaulted on the payments? Really? Yes. Are you saying that you haven't been making payments to making payments to him and what do you have to come back at? If you're talking to, you know, speaking into the note that is. The subject matter would be your Honor, that is irrelevant until they have established the fact that they're the person that's entitled to receive the payments. Right, so you're staying on point, not letting them just take you off in the wrong direction. If you do not keep on that subject matter and you would say even, well, Your Honor, I stopped making payments, bam, default, right there you lost. Yeah. That's the case that Paula had brought up for us. Okay, yep. And if you'll note that, that's the first thing that came out of that appellant's review. The very first thing. Admitted default. Yeah. That was the first paragraph. The first paragraph. She admitted default. So it didn't matter anything else about her claim because she admitted default. So take a look. at. I do believe it's under signatures that expresses pretty, it's pretty well straightforward. It says, unless denied within the pleading, right. you know, as far as the signatures, yeah. if you, if you don't, if you, uh, if you don't deny, then you admit. And at that point, the subject matter of, of um, dishonor kicks in. Yep. Uh, when we sit there and take a look at the idea of dishonor, We'll note that the dishonor is the state that a person is not dishonoring the instrument if they, in fact, are challenging whether or not this is under, uh, that would be under um, claims of recruitment. 
that um, the, the subject matter is, is that if the other party has not identified themselves as being the person that's entitled to demand, uh-huh. if they have not been able to, uh, to sustain that claim, then you have not dishonored the instrument. So as a defendant, the subject matter would be, Your Honor, I have not, def- I have not dishonored the, the obligation, and, um, and, and, I have, and, the per- and they have not identified whether or not they are the person that is entitled to enforce the instrument. Right, right, right. So this right here, that, that's if you're moving towards that part. There's more to it, but that, that's, that's the basis of it. Now, so that would be the key, is without dishonoring the instrument. Yeah. yeah that would be a way to restate. That's code. Yeah. You know, that, and I'm pretty sure that that's under... Um, um, it's either under presentment or claims and recruitment. I, I'm pretty sure that it's under 305, Dave. Yeah, so, 305 or 501, one of those two. I'm pretty sure that it's under 305. That It's towards the effect of, of stating that... Uh, that the person um, that, that that they are not in dishonor of the instrument, you know, um, if if the if the uh, that while challenging whether the person that is demanding the payment, they have to first establish that that they are the person that's entitled to enforce the instrument. Thereby, the person is not in default and not in dishonor so those are the two terms in which you would you you one would consider using uh to sustain their um uh, their claim that um i am not in dishonor of the instrument and i am not in default of the instrument and i have not yet received uh, a balance due from the person who is entitled to enforce the instrument all righty. Okay, now the other side of that is that now that's speaking into the note issue. And you get into that there, that's a sticky wicket. That's a lot of that's a lot of dancing. They changed the music on that a whole lot. Now, if you view the subject matter as given to a quiet title, quiet title has absolutely nothing to do about the note. Absolutely nothing to do about the note. Right. So what do you think the opponent would do if you sought to quiet a title? Well, I mean, if you're if you're in a state court, they're not going to have standing, are they? Yeah, I, well, I would agree, but you would have to assert that. But the, I mean, the idea is, what do you think the defense would be, or the offense would be, of the opponent if you're seeking to quiet a title? He wants to, he wants to go to the federal side. Sure, but what is it that he wants to, what what subject matter do you think he wants to talk about, title or note? Oh, yeah, note. Note. And that's what they will keep pushing. Yeah. And the first things that they come up is the uh, right off the bat, you, you know, they're just seeking to get a free bicycle, and, um, and they have defaulted on their payments. Mm-hmm. And that's, and, what, me, and that's what they seek to push. Let me read um, the section that has to do with without dishonoring the instrument under 501 under presentment. Without dishonoring the instrument, the party to whom presentment is made may, one, 
return the instrument for lack of a necessary endorsement or two, refuse payment or acceptance for failure of the presentment to comply with the terms of the instrument and agreement of the parties or other applicable law. Okay, so... So refuse payment. In other words, without dishonoring the instrument, you can refuse payment. Yes. But but what so you said something about the 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 conditions in the instrument. So what 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 kind of conditions would be in the instrument? That to comply with the terms of the instrument. Yeah. So okay. the pre- uh, see well, that right there is one of the terms in which they seek to intentionally conscrew to mean note is the security instrument. Also an instrument? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in one breath, without dishonoring the instrument is without dishonoring the note, correct? Yeah. And is it not also to state without dishonoring the security instrument? Yeah. Comply with the terms of the instrument they're referring to, the security instrument, in that sentence. It can't be. Now, see, now see you got to, it's like one of these things in which you have to be very cognizant of. So is what you're, is what you're saying here, because there's these conditions. There's conditions in the security agreement. There's conditions in the note. Yes. So your response... Okay, but here, before you go any further, because you may be able to answer this yourself. What instrument is crafted first? Deed. Okay, so what is the paramount security interest formed on? Paramount security interest? Yeah. It's formed on the deed. That's correct. So the so in other words, the note is the interest in which is being formed on the deed or the contract, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So without dishonoring the contract, you're not dishonoring the note. Whoa. See what you see how that's working? Let's let's run that through again. Say that again. Okay. If when the when we're speaking to the subject matter, the opponent now here think of it as a pipe. And you're looking, and from your end of the pipe that you're looking up the pipe, Yeah. you're looking from the deed to the note. Okay. Because the deed is what was formed first. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. And we really have to make sure that we have this rooted. Because with that deed, wasn't there a right formed at that point? A right. Okay. What would that be? Well, doesn't the borrower have a duty and obligation to defend the title of the property? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, okay. So everything is contingent upon that right. Okay. An interest is formed on a right. So what is more important, a right or an interest? Right. A right. So we say... When we're looking through the pipe, we're talking about the right of the interest. But now look from the other end of the pipe. What is it that they're looking at first? The interest. The interest. 
on the right. And they seek to seize the right. Yeah. Correct? Yep. So when we look at the property right, doesn't the title state that the borrower is season of the property? Well, that is certainly a term, but I still don't really get it. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, In other words, you don't know what season is? Is that what you mean? Well, I've heard it interpreted different ways. <clears throat> but you, uh, you, you own it, darling. It's yours. All right. So, and that's the only way that you can pledge it, is you own it. I see. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so the deed is reflective along with that title. Remember that warranty deed that comes with that puppy? Right. And do do you see MERS on that thing? <laughs> yes, I don't know. No. Oh, oh, on the... Not on the promissory note. Okay, okay. You don't see on the promissory note. Uh, do you see MERS written inside of the warranty deed? No. Yes. Well, a oh, lot of times. No. 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 You have right. the lender. The lender, okay. it, that, that, that thing right there is saying, remember, so-and-so conveyed this property over to so-and-so. So-and-so is seasoned of that property. That's the assignment. That warranty deed is securing the assignment. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the deed of trust, the mortgage. Okay. There's no encumbrances on that on that on that property. That property is yours. Right. So the warranty deed is a separate instrument from the actual mortgage. Yeah. Yes, that right there, that warranty deed is your contract that says I own that bicycle, homie. And yeah. so and so and I so I might I'm I must defend the title. Mm-hmm. That right there is inside the deed. That's written inside the deed. It says the borrower must defend the title of the property. Uh-huh. That's an obligation that's written in there. They don't want to talk about that. Take a look at your deed or your mortgage. It will say that right in there. Oh, I've yeah, I've read that, yep. And there's a reason for that. Most borrowers don't know what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> they play upon the ignorance of the borrower in this regard. Right. And now... Now think about this. An interest is formed from the right. You can't have an interest unless there's a right to begin with. Okay. So, and then after you have acquired an interest, you can form a right on that interest, but it originates from a right. So I own the bicycle. I got the title of the bicycle. That bicycle belongs to me. I own it. I have the right, the legal title and the equitable title to that property. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I got the title right here. Okay. Okay, so that's the right. You following me? Right. Uh That's the right, right? That piece of paper right there is the right. Huh? So now you're going to form an interest, and the interest is in that deed or the mortgage. That's now that's what you're forming now is an interest okay. on that title. So in other words, the the right that you have is the title. The warranty deed is the title. That's your right. 
That's your right of ownership right there. Does that make sense? Warranty deed is the right, and then yep. and then what else did you say? Okay. Now the deed or the mortgage, you're going to you're now going to form an interest on your right. So the mortgage is the note. No. Okay, go ahead. Deed or the the deed or the mortgage. It depends on what state you're in. Deed of trust or mortgage. You know, some are deed of trust states. Some it's the warranty deed, the deed of trust too? Oh. Okay. i got to look for a warranty deed then. Okay. The warranty deed is the first piece of paper that you find in the land records office. Okay. That's your right of ownership. That's your ownership papers. That's your title to your property. And that's issued by the title company. That's issued by the title company. All right, warranty. Go ahead. That right there says, I own this. Okay. Okay? And that means that you're seasoned. In other words, you're the lawful hmm. owner of that property. This property is not okay. encumbered. You own it. I would swear, you know, I've got, I've got a copy here of a deed of trust, and I would swear that's in that deed of trust. The deed of trust, you're forming an interest on that title. Oh, okay. Okay, remember, an interest is formed from the right. Mm, yep. Okay, so now when you're making up the deed, the deed says inside there, I am, this is essentially what it says. I am the lawful owner of this property. I'm kind of short-terming this, okay? There's a bunch of stuff in there. But this is essentially what it says. I am the lawful owner of this property. I hereby pledge this property for a sum of money. Okay. By whatever the terms are within this within that contract, whatever the terms are. You with me? Yep. And if I don't pay that sum of money, then I will relinquish myself of this property to whoever whoever is the person in possession, entitled to enforce. That's what it says. Okay? Is that making sense? Yep. Okay. Then the next thing that you do is you make out an IOU. Right. For the amount of money in which is going to be conveyed based upon the interest that was formed from that deed. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So now... Anyone has a warranty deed? Can, you know, could somebody email me? Because I'm a visual person. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, just use your search engine, put inside their example of warranty deed, and then click image. Okay. Go ahead. And I'm sure that you'll come up with all sorts of ones to take a look at. Okay. Now, now the next thing is is that you make up the uh, the the mortgage or excuse me the note, which is just a piece of paper that is interest that is a that is directly affixed to the contract. So, in other words, the deed and the note become one and the same, or subjectively speaking. They're attached. One is not good without the other. Okay. 
And then, after you sign those off, you are giving the interest to the lender. Right. When the lender is in possession of those instruments, he becomes the duly qualified holder, or another way of looking at it is the person who is entitled to enforce being the holder of the instrument. Right. Okay, because when those two are brought together, even though they are instruments, right, a deed is an instrument, the note is an instrument, but when you bring them together, even though they're two separate instruments, they are actually one instrument. Does that make sense? And that's sort of that sort of general general language, so that two become one. Yeah, that's the reason why you can't bifurcate them. You can't separate them. They're one okay. instrument. Okay. At that point. So now when that person who is in possession of those instruments or instrument, they are the person that's entitled to enforce. They're the duly qualified holder at that point. Now, you'll notice that by the interest in which was formed, do they not have a right to enforce the instrument? Yep. You see how that worked? Yep. You're the one that started off with the right. Yes, right. You formed an interest. You conveyed the interest to the bank or to the lender. The lender is in possession of the interest. The lender now takes the interest and forms a right to enforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very well put. Any questions? Oh, and that's right. It is under presentment, Dave. Uh, the um, just to uh, to affirm what you were saying, it, it was without the dishonoring of uh, of the instruments yeah. Yeah. that the person that is making that presentment. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, when they present it to us, right? That at that point in time, then we could return that back to them. Without dishonoring the instrument, yeah. Yeah, we can refuse the payments, you know, or the acceptance of the documents or the claims because they had failed to comply with the terms of the instrument. Now, remember how that works. The instrument is both the note and the deed. It's not one or the other. It's one and the other. Does that make sense? You probably have to explain this to a judge. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that part again. No, 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 no. I'm looking at the ins when we look at the two two instruments themselves. They are, I guess, view them as halves of a contract. Right. One half is the note. The other half is the deed. Together, they make the whole. The whole is the instrument. If you separate them, you only have half. Under rights acquired by transfer, <laughs> if you don't have the whole, right. then you acquire no rights. 
to enforce. That's very clever. So even if they had the promissory note but not the deed, they're still not in entitled to enforce. That's correct. Or if they're in possession of the deed and they don't have the note, then they're not yeah. entitled to enforce. Or if there are what they call, the, um, you have a chain of title and you have a chain of custody of the note, which is essentially saying the same thing. In other words, wherever that note goes by endorsement, it must have a corresponding assignment. So if I make an endorsement to Dave on the note, I must have the corresponding assignment on the deed to Dave as well. If I if I don't do that, you know, as an example, if I'm in possession of the deed and the note, and I endorse endorse the note to Dave, but I do not in I do not assign the deed to Dave, and Dave turns around and takes the note and he sells it off to Paula. And now keep it in mind, he doesn't have possession of the deed. If Paula goes to assign or goes to enforce the instrument, can she enforce it against the deed? And the answer is no, because it's unsecured at that point. Right. She's not in possession of the assignments. You see what I mean? She may be in possession of the note, but it, she, it's now a form of bearer paper because it doesn't have the other half. So that means that she did not acquire the rights of the contract. Is that making sense? Did I explain that well? Very well. Can you hear me now? I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. Evidently, my phone has been acting up, and I haven't been able to oh. jump in tonight, so I don't quite know what was going on. Anyway, um, we're 30 minutes past the uh, 2 o'clock hour, um, so just want to see if we're ready to wrap this puppy up with a bow. Oh, you jumped in, I think, at uh, probably a good time, subjectively, that is. I think that I provided a reasonable explanation. Um, as the embodiment of the whole. I say bravo. I, yeah. I, everything that's come through this last 45 minutes, especially, all of it's been absolutely essential. And then the the without dishonor and, and the rest from that point on, and especially in the last 20 minutes, my gosh, this is totally bravo. And thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for your questions because it helps clarify in our well-trained minds that have been taught to think backwards since we were babies, parents who had mortgages, we're literally having to get through layers and layers and layers of what people have understood. That is simply false. So thank you for this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I felt like this was a really good presentation tonight. Well, let's take, uh, while using that same term uh, as far as presentment, and although we've been kind of like dancing around the subject matter uh, within the workshops and the calls, we'll note that we're, we keep uh, bringing the subject matter back to 
person entitled to enforce the instrument. And again, that's everyone's state code, and it's almost exact in every state. I have not yet seen a variable on that yet. And so 3-301 is in a very important part of this entire process. Now, there are different minds on, on this. In other words, they use different veins. However, to me, and this is just my assessment, the subject matter of instrument is to recognize the whole, especially when we're talking about mortgages or, yeah, properties, real property rights. The instrument in which is being discussed is not necessarily the note or necessarily the deed meaning those are half of the instrument. You have, they have to be together. That's why they speak to bifurcation. In order for it to be the instrument, they both must be together, and they both have to have the chain of title, which is speaking to the deed, meaning the assignments, have to be in proper order to correspond specifically or specially to every single endorsement. So every time there's an endorsement on that instrument, the note, the deed must also be assigned to that same party. So the chain of title which is what we refer to like when we do investigations for chain of title assessments, those are based specifically against the deed. And that's an important element. Why? From our end of the spectrum, from our end of the pipe, it all starts with the deed, not the interest. The deed, which has been formed from that warranty deed, remember? That's we hold the right, not, not the banks. They have a right in interest. We have a right in property. We have the paramount security interest formed on this by the right of assignment from the property from the warranty deed. So the chain of title speaks to the assignments of the deed. The chain of custody of the note is speaking to the endorsements on that note. And they both, both of those instruments must align together to be the whole of the instrument. So when we look at the term under 3-501 presentment, and we take a look at two, and I just brought it up just so that I can make sure that I was on the, on the subject matter. Under two, it says specifically, upon demand of the person to whom presentment is made, that's us. In other words, they're presenting to us for enforcement. The person making presentment must that's them, 
exhibit the instrument. It didn't say a copy. <laughs> no. Right? It didn't say a declaration. It didn't say an affidavit. It didn't say a brief and your allegation. It said, exhibit the instrument. Oh, we shredded it. Okay, well, then if you shredded it, then that puts you in a whole different classification. In other words, now you've got some serious things to prove. Because you don't have the instruments. So they have to exhibit the instrument. Number two, give reasonable identification. Now, in the example that we used earlier, it should be reflective of when we talked about Nancy traveling the world and Paula having the assignment to enforce the instruments. If she doesn't have them, Dave can challenge it. And if he says, who gave you the authority? And Paula says, Nancy gave me the authority. Dave says, okay, I'll provide reasonable identification of that. Show me the documentation that supports that claim. And this is supported in the next line. And if the presentment is made on behalf of another person, oh, that's what we just said, Paula, on behalf of Nancy. Give reasonable identification, and if presentment is made on behalf of another person, reasonable evidence of authority to do so. That's exactly what we just covered, right? Mm -hmm. And now we have a third one. Sign a receipt on the instrument for any presentment aid. Huh. Or surrender the instrument if full payment is made. So when they start saying, oh, we don't have to give you back the original note. Oh, we don't have to give you back the deed. Bullshit. I mean, bullshit. Why? Because the law is specific. It didn't say give you back a copy. So you're going to take them to court when they say that. It says, or surrender the instrument if payment is made. In, you know, if full payment is made. Well, I, I, I got I got the reading part. I just I don't have the enforcement part. <laughs> I'm sorry. Could you refer, say that again, please? I said I got the reading part. I don't have the enforcement part. So what what you're what you're suggesting is you know for a party that isn't going to hand over the instrument after after it's been paid. Your Honor, are you claiming that the opponent is above the law? Does yeah, the state I, law not state specifically yeah. that they must surrender the payment if the if, uh, surrender the instrument if in fact the full payment is made? But but you know I I did not I did not tender the payment for the note in the courthouse I did it in some some other place now I have to get that guy to court to have him turn over this this uh, this this paid note uh, yes and you may want to uh, the consideration of course I'm not an attorney I can't give legal legal advice the consideration may be perhaps if it were be. I would be sending, if you're involved with litigation or one is involved in litigation, they would be sending a discovery notice over to them, a request for production. Produce the instrument. Are you following what I'm saying, dear? Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, is that informal or formal? No, that would be informal discovery, right? If you're in right? litigation, it's formal. If it's, yeah, if, if you're in it's litigation. For then it would be informal. And it's always better if it's informal. I mean, if you're not involved with the actual litigation, it would be the informal. 
Mm-hmm. You know, to for because like, see, you're trying to resolve the subject matter. Remember, the whole the theme goes like this. Biblically, without getting all spiritual and whatnot, biblically it goes like this: You always approach your brother first. You always approach your brother first before you go to court. You make your complaint to your brother. If your brother doesn't want to comply, then you bring a couple witnesses, and you ask your brother again. Now, in the case of another witness, what are we speaking to? You send the informal discovery to begin with. Ubu doesn't respond. So what do you do? Don't you follow it up with an opportunity to cure the second witness, the second mm-hmm. letter? This is where that the people that have been following that sovereign movement stuff, the, you know, the 123 UCC, this is what we're speaking to here. It's informal. So the first one is, out the door is, Notice of intent, which under the notice of intent, or don't get hung up on the word intent, it's what it, the intent is, what is it that you're doing? You know, so in other words, notice of request for production, you know, production of record or whatever, however you want to call it, just make sure that you start off with the third notice to begin with. So that's the first one that goes out the door. Ubu doesn't respond. And even though you stayed inside there uh, under your default, that if Ubu doesn't respond to you within, say, 30 days or something, that that you're going to believe that that he is not a person that is in possession of the instrument and that he does not have any interest in the note or the property. So after 30 days goes by, what do you do? You send them the second letter. Notice of opportunity to correct or notice to, of opportunity to cure. And you state, Ubu, you got 10 days to cough those records up. Or uh, we're going to say that you don't have any interest in the deed or the note and that you're a person that's not entitled to enforce the instrument. Just that simple. Now, what happens when 10 days goes by? You send out the third one, which is uh, notice of agreement. Some call it notice of judgment or something like that. I would avoid, if it were me, I would avoid using the term judgment because then that's conclusionary, and that can be challenged within law and because you can't judge your own case. So you send out, and besides, that's all under a form that's unrelated to what we're talking about. Just simply stick with the general. Notice of, notice of agreement or... Uh, notice of, of, of default and dishonor or something like that. And inside that, the statement is, you have five days to produce the documents. Or it will be a final expression in the record that they do not have any interest and they are not the person that's entitled to enforce the instrument pursuant state law. Now, you do all that before you ever go to litigation. Before you ever go into suit, you send all that out. So now when you go inside a court, how well do you think the judge is going to react? Or how do you think the bench is going to react when here you're now standing in court and Ubu is still fumbling trying to find documents when you've been saying all along, they won't cough up the documents, and they're saying, Your Honor, they owe us money. And you, all the while, you've been saying, Look, I've been trying to resolve this subject matter. Matter of fact, 
We wouldn't even be here today if they would have showed me the documents when I asked for them. So in other words, it casts suspicion on the opponent immediately. And then the judge grows real tired of the opponent not having the records when they're claiming that they're the person that's entitled to enforce. Yeah. Now, that's where the next part of this goes. Under presentment, again, 3-501. Now you go to 3, and there's your support mechanism. And this is also your declaration for uh, the statement of denying in the pleading of the signatures. Without dishonoring the instrument, the party to whom presentment is made may, one, return the instrument for lack of a necessary endorsement. Okay, they start passing copies around. Hold it a second. That's not the same thing. Two, refuse payment or acceptance for failure of the presentment to comply with the terms of the instrument. An agreement of the parties or other applicable law or rule. Note the term applicable law. That's your state law. What is the rule? How about the UCC? All the things in which we've been discussing today. So in other words, when they try to make claims that you're in default or that you're dishonoring, there is your trump card. If they, remember, number two under that stated specifically, upon the demand of the person to whom presentment is made, the person making the presentment must. It doesn't say may. It doesn't say eh, they could. It says must. Exhibit the instrument. Give reasonable identification. And if presentment is made on the behalf of another person, reasonable evidence of authority to do so. And sign a receipt on the instrument for any payments made. Or surrender the instrument if full payment is made. There's your trump card that's dealt with under presentment. So I think that that's probably enough to chew on for, for tonight. Is there any questions, comments? It was good. It was good for me. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad. Anybody else? Anything? All good. Well, we're doing good today. That sounds like Dick. Yeah, it is. Oh, welcome to the program, Dick. I haven't heard you in a while. No, I, I've been here the whole night. Well, more or less the whole night. I've had some business I had to take care of in between, but I've been here. I've been listening to you a whole lot. Yeah, and it's very good, Kenny. It's all very good. The questions everybody asks, the input they've got, it's all its all great stuff. You guys are pretty darn good. The pretty beauty darn- of asking the questions and other people talking is it kind of breaks it up, and it, I think it just makes it easier for you all to, to listen and absorb. Well, we're realizing we're not as afraid of legal words as we used to be because we came across something um, just a week ago that we were looking at words that I used to just shudder at and go blank and, you know, dazed. Um, 
dazed in the headlights type of thing, and now it's like, oh, 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 okay, okay. And Nancy, I want to just give you our blessings and hugs because we were up in the northwest sometime back where we used to live, and 100-mile winds ripped off the roofs. So we know wow. very uncomfortable. Hey, Nancy, I'm, have you had any trees fall over? Not, not this round. Wow. But, uh, our neighbors across the hill, uh, what, three years ago, they had 19 trees that oh, fell over in the in the one inch snowstorm, and then today wow. or yesterday they just had another landslide, so they had another three tree stumps come and cross their road. So, you know, wow. but, but but that's normal for us that we don't think anything about it because land and land and trees move. <laughs> so Jeez. you know, hundred mile you know, real? Yeah, they they just happen. So I'll tell you about a real story of a woman who's apparently very famous, known author, and I won't give her name, but she, I, I was in class with her for about almost five years about the Indigo children, and one day she told the whole group there, people from different countries come for this class, and she said, she kind of looked shyly around, and she said, you know, I was born in Louisiana, I still have the home property, now she's in her 60s, I think her late 60s, maybe early 70s, and so she lives part-time there, and then also lives in the Southern California area. And she has such a fondness for the trees. So they knew this tornado was coming. And she went out quietly, um, trying not to let the neighbors see her too much, but she went out there quietly and put her hand on each tree and spoke to every tree on the property and said, we know there's a storm coming. I mean, she knew that the life force in the trees knew the, the weather had changed. And she said, I ask you that if you need to move or break anything, please fall away from the house and the car. And exactly that's what happened. Hmm. The reason I offer this is this is the exact same thing of natural law where we are all one in the life energy field or spirit or creation or God but we're all one in the life energy field, and we all actually innately, in the natural way, understand each other on levels of communication we don't normally acknowledge. Just like everything, Nancy, you and Kenny are sharing with us that you've discovered, and now in this study circle, we're all discovering deeper and deeper. These things have not been taught to us since we were little ones, little kids. So it seems unusual. Well, talking with the trees and the land and asking, like, for the, when the rains come down, I've done it here. We could have terrible mudslides here. And I've asked that the rains come in a way where they will soak a little bit. They'll give it some softness into the earth and then stop a while and then soak again and stop a while. And we've been very fortunate not to have any mudslides here. So... Um, we do, as human beings, have the right to connect with our other family members that are wearing other bodies, including the soil around our places and including the roads that we drive and including asking the trees to fall in a way where no one gets hurt. Well, within that same vein is uh, speaking into what we just went through, at least in my assessment, is there's only one as in one instrument, um, 
Mm-hmm. Of us, and now each one of us is a part. So nothing acquires the right, <laughs> if you're following this, you know, of enforcement as individual. We're all in this together. Beautiful. So. Bravo and beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank all of you guys for your participation yeah. and your attendance this evening. Again, I thank you because, folks, we're, we're really all in this together. And perhaps we can begin to make those distinctions as far as the various arguments that, that go towards notes, keeping in mind that's one subject matter, and quieting a title is another subject matter. And although they, they're, they're hand in glove, they are separate and subject to the conditions in which we face. We want to, in my assessment, be more so lean towards quieting the title. That's what quiet title is about, is quieting the title and discharging the arguments of the note. We need to be familiar with it because it's part of the whole. That the idea is, if we're looking for remedy within the foreclosure, then what we need to recognize is how to quiet a title. And how to quiet a title is to understand the nature of the assignments. Why? Remember, from our end, we hold the right. They hold the interest. We're the one who conveyed the interest to them. They did not convey it to us. So it's our duty, our obligation, to protect the title of the property. And they will do everything that they can to wrestle that away from us. So while we go through this, again, it's not to make it difficult, but it's to recognize there are multiple elements up here. And I do believe that we're pulling it together. I I do believe that we're coming to terms and it, I'm going to suggest that probably here within short order, all of us should be well-rounded within the subject matter as we continue through with the various principles of the UCC and how to move forward with quieting titles. So, Amen. With that being stated, I'm going to sign off, folks. Speak okay. to yourself and to each other. Nancy, if you guys have anything else to add, have at it. Just, amen, brother. Okay. Good night, everyone. Have a blessed all. Happy Valentine's Day, too. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye.